been a, a blessing to be here with you, to see your fellowship, and uh, know that uh, it's been a, a, a sweet time for me. I pray for you, and um, just uh, what a great opportunity we have as we follow the Lord to become more effective, more strong, more focused on that which He calls us to be, and what He calls us to be is to be set apart, to be holy, to be different. And one of the reasons it's important to be different is because the world is watching. I talked earlier about the, the idea of, of, of uh, military training and the idea of training to be who God wants us to be and the significance and importance of that. But see, the world is watching. And, and I remember several years ago I was reading uh, the Bible again for the first time, which you have the experience doing no matter how many times you've read it. And God challenged me and, and, and gripped me with a story that I'd read many times before. It's the story of Nathan's confrontation of David uh, in regards to his sin with Bathsheba. And he, he said something to him that, that the Spirit kind of used to arrest me. What he said was, you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And I thought, that's bad. That's, that's bad stuff. I mean, like I said, I'd read it before, but I just began to realize a little bit the significance of what it would be like to have someone come and say, you've given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And of course, I knew the context in which that was being said. And, and so my tendency was to think, well, I'm safe because I'm not there. Right? No Bathsheba in my life, at least not in that literal sense. And so, but the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and said, no, no, wait a minute. And I began thinking... What are things that I have done? What are things that we do to give occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme? And I began to realize that any time we live our life in such a way so that lost people can look at us and say, you're no different than I am, we've given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. See, it's not just about adultery. It's not about pornography. It's those are certainly part of it, but we can't just limit it to that. We, we have to be wise and we have to live our lives in such a way that we don't give occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Now, the bottom line is people who don't know Christ, even if we live that way, they might still say that, but we can't give them occasion to do that. And they are watching. They're watching in the workplace. They're watching in your neighborhood. Uh, the, the story to me that just bore this out and God pressed upon me the remembrance of this as I was thinking about this several years ago was a number of years before that. We lived in Amarillo. and We just moved there and, and um, <clears throat> after seminary graduation, I was a program administrator at a children's home. And as we were there, I went to go see a movie with my wife. And uh, as she was inside, I was waiting outside in a line to buy overpriced concessions. And, and uh, as I was waiting in the line, I was observing this 17-year-old boy who was working the concession stand. There were a couple of people in line in front of me. And they'd get up to the counter. He'd say, what do you want? $27 or whatever he'd say. You know, but it, it was just that very, what do you want? Not, I mean, that was it. And it, it was. It wasn't how can I, it was what do you want? Well, that's interesting. Well, I get up to the counter and all of a sudden the caffeine must have kicked in or something because he changed. His affect changed. He started smiling. Hey, how you doing? And, and, and how are things going? He didn't say, how are the wife and kids? But, you know, is that kind of that kind of like what? And I'm thinking to myself, what happened? 
And my first thought is, well, there's something about me he liked. And I quickly dismissed that, realized that wasn't it. And then I realized, you know, what, what happened? I still couldn't figure out what it was. And, and I thought, well, maybe, like I said, maybe the caffeine did kick in. And, uh, you know, maybe he just kind of had a change in, in, in heart all of a sudden. And, and uh, you know, it just several, you know, hey, what, what, what movie are you going to go see and this and that. I several questions. And then I stepped over to uh, add some salt or something to the already healthy popcorn. And, and uh, while I was doing that, uh, the next person in line got up and I heard him go back to, what do you want? I thought, what was that about? And as I'm walking back into the theater, I realized it was a test. And the reason I realized it was a test, because I looked down and realized that I had on a Christian t-shirt. And it was a one-question test. The only question that mattered of the several that he asked me was the question, what movie are you going to see? Now, I passed the test because my wife and I were going to see a G-rated movie. But I wonder how many people with Christian t-shirts failed his test. I wonder how many of them were going to see whatever chainsaw massacre or this, that, or the other that allowed him to say, those Christians, they're no different than I am. They watch the same movies because he knows he's not supposed to be watching. They watch the same movies I watch. See, people are watching. And so as we continue to try to put feet to what we're looking at this weekend, we need to recognize that God's call to us is to be holy, it's to be righteous, it's to be different, it's to be set apart. It's not to give occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. It's not to, as Bill just shared, it's not to, obviously, to hurt our wives. The, the, the standard is high, the expectation is high, the challenge is high. As we walk down that path of, of what does it look like to be holy in this context, we close the last session speaking about the idea of fleeing sexual immorality. And I want to talk for a few minutes more about some ways that, that we can indeed flee that sexual immorality. And one of the things, and, and, and Bill mentioned it too, but one of the things is for those of us that are married, um, we need to think about our wives. We need to desire and think about our wives in a sensual sexual way instead of thinking about others in a sensual sexual way. We talked about put off and put on. You know, one of the most effective ways that I've helped people deal with the issues of lust and pornography is to quit thinking about somebody else and start thinking about their spouse. Now, recognize that like a lot of things, there's still a heart issue that has to be addressed. So substituting your wife as some kind of a sexual object doesn't solve the problem. I'm assuming that your heart's desire is to follow God and to act as the way that would honor him. And in that case, then treasuring your wife as God has presented her to you as one to be treasured, as one to provide sexual satisfaction to you, but thinking of her in a God-honoring, her-honoring way, wife-honoring way, that's a very appropriate way to flee sexual immorality. And so I would uh, challenge you in regards to that. Uh, for those of you that uh, wonder, is there a biblical basis for that? Read Proverbs 5, 15 through 20. Um, we won't do that now. We have young people in the house. But uh, the reality is it's uh, pretty blunt uh, about how we are to think about our wives. Um, if you're single, um, and even if you're not, but one of the things we have to think about as we're addressing other women, but especially singles in the context of dating relationships, and one of the, I think the first questions that needs to be asked is, whose woman is this anyway? Okay. Because the reality is this woman is 
first of all, a, a, a daughter of God, a child of God. This woman, second of all, is a daughter of somebody else. And most likely, this woman will somebody, at some point in time be somebody's wife. And uh, the reality is that if you have sisters, or even if you don't, if there are women in your life and you're single that you respect, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, what would I think about somebody else thinking about my sister, whatever, the way I think about that girl? And that may help you shut down and flee from sexual immorality as you put it in that context. Whose woman is she anyway? I had a, um, my wife had a friend growing up um, that uh, she, she didn't date, uh, but they on occasion, uh, would, she'd ride home from church with him or something to that effect. And uh, he told her, and then he told me later, he said that the operating principle he worked on as a young man in regards to uh, people of the opposite sex. And like I said, he didn't date my wife, but even those he dated, he said, I wanted to, because I didn't know if I'd marry her or not. He said, I wanted to be able to go to the man that she eventually married and said, and say, if there had been videotapes, you know, it was back before we had the cameras we have now, but if there'd been videotapes, uh, VHS videos of the interaction I had with your current wife, you would have been able to watch them and you wouldn't have had any concern. Oh, that's an interesting standard. Uh, that's an interesting standard that he had because he recognized the fact that this, there is this issue of authority and there is this issue of this woman who you may be dating and interested in today is going to be somebody's wife and quite possibly not yours. And so whose woman is it anyway? Whose woman is that? I think is a legitimate, appropriate question that we need to ask for you younger guys. And for, again, those that are single, you know, the whole issue of dating is something that needs to be considered and contemplated as well. We've talked a little bit about the issue of technology. You know, one of the challenges is that it used to be if, uh, and, and, and when I was growing up, you wanted to ask somebody out on a date, you most likely did it face to face. You possibly could do it on the phone. But the idea of an innocuous text, that wasn't even a possibility. It's a whole lot easier to ask somebody out on a text than it is on the phone or in person. It's a whole lot easier to have a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex when you're single via text that steps over a line. See, the problem is it's not like the line is clearly drawn. It, it, it's not like, you know, hey, if I say this or if I text this, it's in. Now, there are some things that you could obviously know that on, um, you know, the, the sexting and those kinds of things, you know, gosh, that's not appropriate. But but in regards to those those little fishing expeditions that we sometimes go on relationally, that's where we have to step back and say, is that appropriate in the context? What in the context of the Corinthians passage of fleeing sexual immorality? We don't wake up typically and say, I'm going to pursue this person with the idea of ultimate sexual sin. It's a series of sinful decisions that begin with the thoughts and then frequently materialize into something else. And so again, I mentioned the idea of guardrails, but I think it's very important, uh, young men especially, uh, that somebody, ideally your father, uh, but somebody knows about your relationships with those of the opposite sex. That somebody reads those texts. 
that somebody knows about all the social media you're on. And I may be very unpopular here, but men of the church who are parents, don't let your kids have Snapchat. It specifically is designed to allow kids to hide things from parents. Don't let them have it. And so that's a challenge that we have out there. And folks, I've got good kids too. But don't let that be a basis and a reason not to do that. The challenge that we have is how do we help each other in this context of living a life in such a way that we bring glory and honor to God? What does that look like? Now, I do want to mention one thing just in passing. I was just kind of as I think about this, I, I, I want to mention one thing in passing, especially dealing with uh, parents, but also young men as well. And that is the fact that I have seen a dramatic and dynamic change in the 30 years I've been in ministry. And that is the fact that 25 years ago, when I, if I was having this conference, I would be very content and it would be very appropriate for me to focus on guys. But folks, the growing incidence of young ladies and women being involved in pornography is staggering. Do not assume, parents, fathers, do not assume that this is just an issue you have to deal with with your sons. You need to make sure that your daughters are protected from pornography as well. Young men, as you get involved in relationships, don't automatically assume that the only people you're going to have to be concerned with is your guy friends in regards to how they deal with pornography but it is on the rise in the context of the female population as well. And unfortunately, in the context of the church, uh, that's true. So you just need to be aware of that and keep in mind the fact that uh, that may be a place where, uh, especially our kids, uh, get uh, sucker punched uh, from, a, from a perspective or from a, a, a something that they weren't looking for and that we as parents uh, wouldn't be looking for uh, either. <clears throat> in addition to the idea of text. And so, so how, how do we do, what does this look like? I think the way, what this looks like is that a lot of times we take this accountability idea and, and, and make it too formal. We, it, it, again, kind of what, what uh, Heath was saying about accountability early versus late has double application. But one of, the, one of the applications of early versus late is rather than after, like I said this morning, rather than after the cows get out, let's shut the gate beforehand. And so what does that mean? That means in being involved in our, our family members' um, decisions, being involved in accountability for them in regards to their access to technology, what they're using, how they're doing it. My kids know that I'm going to read their texts and I'm going to check their phones and it's not their private property. And even if they pay the bill, they, they live in my home, I'm going to look at it. They don't know when I'm going to look at it. And do I think for a minute that they can't outsmart me? No, I don't think for a minute they can't outsmart me. Um, I'm probably a little bit ahead of where he'll hear Dale is in regards to technology, but not a whole lot. Uh, and so the reality is, no, I, I have no doubt. And it has happened once, but it's interesting uh, the, the, the one of my young men who did the workaround, I, I didn't find it. The Lord helped me to see it. Um, and, and so no, I don't, I don't for a minute think that that's going to absolutely protect my kids from accessing pornography or texting inappropriate. No, I don't think so. However, I do think if their heart's right, that it's going to help them stay accountable and it's going to minimize either the chances for their sin or minimize the distance between when that sin happens and when we're able to deal with it in a God-honoring 
uh, in biblical way. So one of the things I think that's important, one of the things that's been a blessing to me as I've watched y'all interact some this weekend, is we've got to talk about these things. We've got to talk about these things with our family. We've got to talk about these things with our brothers in the church. We've got to talk about these things. We've got to know that you're not the only person struggling with an issue. Now, again, there's like so many things in life, there's kind of a double-edged sword there. Because sometimes we can feel almost complacent when we realize that somebody else has that struggle too. No, that's not an excuse to, that other people are struggling with it too. That doesn't give us an excuse. What it does is it reminds us of the fact that, you know, if we talk about these things, you know, hey, I found, I found something pretty important. I found that, you know, when I go to uh, Fox News, I, I found that when you scroll down about half the page, just about everything has at least half of the articles that are um, linked to outside of the Fox News website have something to do with sensuality or sex. So maybe Fox News not, ought not to be uh, your, uh, uh, your homepage. To think about those things. Oh, you know, I hadn't really seen that. I hadn't really thought about it. I've told some people that who, who look at Fox News say, you know, I hadn't thought about that. But now that you mention it, well, that's a person who hadn't gone to any of those places. Uh, but the reality is it's there. It's everywhere. And so we need to make sure that we are talking about it uh, as well. We need to make some decisions up front about what we're going to do and what we're not going to do in the context of fleeing sexual immorality. My wife and I, early on, I made some commitments to her in regards to things that I would and wouldn't do. Uh, some of you have heard Billy Graham's uh, commitments. You know, Billy Graham, one of his commitments that he would never ride uh, in a car with a woman that was not his wife. He had a number of other commitments. Based on your context and your situation in life, you need, to make those, uh, you need to make those decisions and you need to make those commitments to your spouse or younger men, single folks, especially the younger guys here, to your parents. You make those commitments so that they know what you're doing. Uh, at seminary, when I first started, um, the, the office pecking order was that when you got seniority, you got to move from an office... In the corner, up in the front, we kind of had these U, uh, U-shaped uh, offices. And uh, the, 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 the lowest person got this office in the front, right across from the secretary's desk. And as you got seniority, you got to move down the hall to a window, an office with windows. Don't have an office with windows in that first context. And uh, I stayed in that office. I stayed in that office a good 15 years beyond when I could have moved down the hall to an office with windows. Why did I do that? I did that because of the fact that there are women students in my program. And I recognized the fact that when I was sitting there in my office, six feet from my secretary's desk, and I told my secretary, anytime I'm visiting with a woman student, I want you to stay at your desk. And I had that door open. The chances for either A, there being a problem, or B, there being some kind of an accusation would be diametrically decreased. And I told my wife that. And, you know, that's a pretty small thing, right? Well, not to her. It was a really big thing to her that I stayed in that office, something she still talks about today. So putting up those guardrails, thinking those things through become important. I've not made the the adamant uh, commitment that uh, Billy Graham did in regards to riding with a woman, not my wife. There have been, I think, in 30 years of marriage, maybe two or three times where I've done that. But you know what I've done before I've done that in my commitment to my wife is I'm going to call you before I do that. And if you have any hesitation at all, I'm not going to do it. 
And the other reason I call her is so that if somebody says, hey, I saw your husband, he was out at the rib place the other day with somebody else, she can say, oh yeah, and she can know that and explain that without there being any question in her mind of saying, huh, Where I didn't know about that. So that's what we've worked out. That's the commitment we've made. But like I said, my tendency is, no, I'm not going to ever do that. But there have been a couple of times where I've done that. But she knows before it happens for both reasons there. But those are the kind of things that we need to think through. Men, you need to think through what, what, is, what is appropriate physical touch. I, I kind of, for some of you, maybe I think I have a little bit of an advantage because I'm just not really a hugger. You know? And so it's not hard for me not to hug people. For some of you, it may be more hard. Am I saying that a man should never hug a woman who's not his wife? I'm not saying that, but I'd sure give it some serious thought. I would say, I'd go so far as to say you should never give a frontal hug to a woman that's not your wife. I'd go that far. You may disagree with me, and that's fine. But those are the kind of things that we need to think through, that practical level. And again, we've laid the foundation. I'm not in any way trying to say that just that's going to fix this problem. But I'm also not trying to say that praying to God, God change my heart and make me all better, and doing nothing... That's not going to solve the issue either. God's given us accountability. He's given us stewardship. And he desires that we walk in a way that glorifies and honors him. That shows us as being set apart. Thoughts. What do you think about? Again, uh, I, would, I would refer you to Philippians um, 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's anything excellent and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And obviously, some of the things that you may be struggling with don't fit that criteria. But I'm convinced that some of the relationships we have and some of the texts that we look at and some of the jokes that we look at and some of the movies that we look at don't fit that criteria either. And my concern is that uh, when we begin to do something in our life that allows our minds to be clouded with those things that aren't true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, those things that aren't of excellence, then it's not too many steps from there to some more insidious and more dramatic and dynamic sins as well. So we want to be careful about our thoughts. So ways to flee. Uh, as I've just gone over, some things to think about, to work out, to talk in the context of your marriage, possibly your family, in the context of the brothers that you have here in the church family, um, regards how you're going to interact with women who aren't your wife, how you're going to interact with things that you look at, things that you put before your eyes, decisions that you're going to make, I would argue beforehand, about what's appropriate technologically what are appropriate apps what are inappropriate apps what are appropriate texts who are appropriate people to text what are you going to do in regards to preparing to put up some guardrails in that area thoughts as well actions hugs etc um, make those commitments now and keep them husbands you need to make those commitments to your wife and possibly to somebody else as well uh, young men, you need to make those commitments to your parents. Singles who are out of the home, you need to make those commitments to somebody else in the body of believers. I think it's important uh, to set the groundwork for that 
so that you don't fall into the sexual sin that we're talking about. Now, some of you um, are thinking, gosh, I wished I'd done that 10 years ago uh, because you're at a point where the cows are already out. So what do we do in regards to that? Where do we go from here, specifically in the context of God calling us to holiness uh, and giving us hope? And um, God calls us to have a clear conscience. In Acts 24, 16, Paul gives an example of this. He says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Paul's providing testimony there to the king. He says, I have a commitment to have a clear conscience before God and man. God's desire is for us to have a clear conscience before him and others. And as Bill and others have already talked about, that indeed may mean the fact that we need to not only repent to God, but we may need to repent of our sins to uh, our, our wives, uh, possibly to other people's, that people's, other people that have been affected as well. One of the challenges in regards to commitments uh, outside of marriage uh, is the fact that sometimes uh, that uh, young man uh, may need to confess and repent to a parent of a girl and not just the parents in the home as well. Uh, we uh, have had the opportunity to deal with that with one of my sons and uh, an important aspect of repentance that you don't want to leave behind in regards to, we remember we started with guarding your heart. Well, I'm going to implement the, uh, emphasize the fact that I think Proverbs 4 calls us not only to guard our heart, but I would argue by implication calls us as men who are to be leaders to guard women's hearts as well. And uh, especially in those dating relationships, it's very easy uh, for young men not to guard uh, that young woman's heart. It's also very easy for us not to guard our wife's heart. It's not just a young man's problem, but uh, another biblical basis and challenge for us as spiritual leaders uh, in the context uh, of the home. So uh, that repentance issue, well, let me, let me tell you that in counseling, one of the things I talk to people about whenever I'm counseling someone and I'm bringing them to a point where they need to go and confess their sin and repent to somebody else. Um, and when I'm counseling, teaching students how to counsel people in those contexts, one of the things I say is that you need to connect the dots. Because you can have somebody sitting before me, I can have somebody sitting before me for counseling and they can be convicted and they can know that they need to go confess and repent. And I can say, go confess and repent. And they can do, go and do just about anything but confessing and repenting. The, the challenge is, according to 2 Corinthians 7, is that there is a sorrow, a, a godly sorrow that leads to life and a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And one of the things that's most important as we think about the idea of confessing our sin not just sexual sin, but any sin, is that we recognize that we're not just saying, I'm sorry. In fact, I challenge married couples to kind of delete that phrase from their vocabulary, because what does that mean? Are you sorry you got caught? Are you sorry you're causing trouble? Are you sorry you hurt her? I mean, what, what does that mean? If, however, you say, I've sinned against you in the following way, will you forgive me? It's very clear what you're saying at that point in time. But, but there still needs to be assistance given because the tendency is either to frequently minimize the sin or maybe expand the sin. Or when I challenge people to go back, I want you to show me in Scripture what you're repenting of. Show me that perspective of what you're sinning 
uh, show me the biblical perspective of how what you did is sin. And a lot of times they'll come with 527 verses. But it's not real effective to go to somebody and say, I've sinned against you in the following 527 verses. Will you forgive me? So, so helping folks come together and work through that. And then what I typically do in the context of a counseling setting is I say, okay, so how is this loved one going to respond when you do this? Well, they're probably going to do this. And so I'll do role plays with them. And I'll say, what are there some other ways he may respond or she may respond? And they'll say this, this, and this. So we'll go through some role plays and I'll play those different roles just to kind of see what kind of reaction they get. Because like Bill said, you know, if in this context, your wife's not going to be, uh, is, is going to be skeptical. She's going to be hurt. The last thing you want to do is become defensive and take this from a, a time of you going and trying to reconcile and, and repent and confess and escalate it into more of a conflict. Uh, and so you need to think through what's she going to say, how she's going to say, how she's going to react. And so my counsel to you at this point in time is if there is sexual sin that you need to confess to your wife, before you do that, sit down with one of the pastors or leaders in your church and receive counsel about the most effective way to do that. We need to be shepherded through that process. That's a process, not just confessing sexual sin to our wives, which is kind of like the ultimate but the idea of confessing sin to just about anyone is a process we don't have much experience at, and most of us haven't been taught well how to do. And it can have some negative consequences as well. So you want to have somebody help you go through this process. You want to have somebody shepherd you through this process. And sometimes that person may be with you in the midst of this. They may be close in case there's a challenge or there's a problem. And for those of you that are leaders, I would say as well, you know, even as Bill said, I think... We need to, your perspective is not at all how your wife responds. Your perspective is what you do. But sometimes there are wives that respond in inappropriate ways. Uh, in regards to issues of forgiveness, they respond based on feelings, those kinds of things. Somebody needs to shepherd the wife through that as well, and it can't be you. Bottom line is, if your wife says, I'll never forgive you, what do you do? Well, you live with her in an understanding way, and you love her as Christ loved the church. That's what God calls you to do. And that's what you do. And, and, and you continue working getting the log out of your eye. But that doesn't mean that she gets a pass because of the significance of your sin. Somebody needs to love her enough to come alongside her and speak the truth and love to her as well. And it's not going to be you. Uh, but, but recognize that is something that may need to be addressed in the midst of this. That's why it's important to have that shepherding component as well. Because that person, that leadership role, will have some wisdom about, hey, maybe this is something, not just an issue of, initial shock and, and time, but this is an issue that needs to be addressed with her and know who the one is to do that and how to address that uh, as well. <clears throat> so um, one of the things I mentioned this morning I wanted to clarify too uh, was when I mentioned uh, wife being an accountability partner. Let me just go ahead and clarify what I mean by that is, and again, this is where that shepherding comes in, is assuming that a, a, a man trying to honor God is, is, is confessing and repenting and is trying to live with his wife in an understanding way and love her as Christ loved the church and his focus is right to the best it can be, his heart is right, and he's trying to live out a God-honoring life before her and provided that she is also doing the same, then that's the case where that wife should be uh, and can be an effective accountability partner. Okay? If either of one of them and their heart is not right, then that's probably not the place to do that because it can degenerate either into the man basically saying, well, you know, I'm just confessing 
uh, my sin and you need to forgive me because God mandates it, uh, which isn't real effective. Or the woman, uh, one of the things I talk to people about is, uh, unfortunately in our culture a lot today, instead of forgiveness, there's a lot of probation. You know, I'll say I'm going to forgive you, but basically what I'm going to do is put you on probation. And uh, you mess up again, I'm going to get you. And, uh, and a lot of times that's the dynamic that's a work on the other side. If you're in the midst of having this kind of struggle that you need to confess and repent and deal with before your wife and before God, you need some help to walk through that process in a God-honoring way. Uh, because otherwise the, the impact on the marriage uh, will, uh, will be negative and uh, won't be God-honoring. Uh, and yeah, it's embarrassing <clears throat> to sit down with somebody and say, you know, Pastor, I need, I need your help because I'm going to sit down with my wife and tell her what I've been doing. And uh, no matter what you've been doing, how little or how big you think it is, it's not anything you want to sit down and talk with the pastor about. But nevertheless, what's your goal here? Well, your goal is, as was mentioned last night, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. And you can know that ultimately as you are humbled and uh, follow that spiritual guidance and uh, authority, uh, you're going to be able to do and follow those two passages as well. Matthew 22, uh, 36 through 40. Jesus said when asked, what's the most important commandment? He said the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He said that's the great and foremost commandment. The, the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole of the law and the prophets. A lot of times we think of the Christian life as being very complex, and we, and we, and we struggle and deal with and, and study the, the nuances of theology, and, and those are important tasks. We are to study. Second Timothy 2.15 makes that clear. Uh, and, and the purpose we are to study for as well. Um, but uh, the, the bottom line is that what God calls us to is not... Uh, the, the Christian life is not as complex as we like to sometimes think it is. It's really pretty simple. It's love God and love neighbor. On these two commands depend the whole of the law and the prophets. You get that, you get it all. The problem is it's so difficult we don't stand a chance of doing it without God's help. Without God's grace, without the gospel, there's no way in the world that we can love God and we can love neighbor. But the challenge I, I, I leave you with, the foundational challenge I leave you with is that wherever God found you this weekend, whether it's in the midst of very little struggle, or whether it's in the midst of significant ongoing sexual sin. <clears throat> the foundation to what God wants you to do with that is to get your life in order. And if God's not first place in your life, your life's out of order. And if your life's out of order, the way of a sinner is hard. And so whatever you do from this point forward, the discussion questions, the asking for help, the accountability, whatever you do, you need to first stop and say, has God been first place in my life? Have I been loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind? And if you haven't, you need to confess and repent and ask God to forgive you of that first sin. And then the second sin, that second commandment is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Who's your closest neighbor? Well, I would assume it would be the one you're one with. So for those of you that are married, if your wife, your family, those who God ordains are not those that you're loving, uh, then you need to confess and repent of that as well. And then upon that foundation, upon a recognition of what God calls us to, of loving him first and loving our neighbor, upon that, 
you can begin to address and deal with the, the walls or the roof that have been falling in uh, or falling down uh, in the midst of the challenge uh, that you have. John eight thirty one and 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine. And you know, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I don't know where you are today, and we're going to take some, I'll take some questions here in a minute if you have any to ask. But the reality is there is hope. There is hope in the fact that you know the truth, and the truth can set you free. You can join my counselee who said, I realize now that the hope isn't just that the grip around my neck could be loosened. But the hope is that I can actually be set free. I can let go of those nuts. I can pull my hand out of that snare and I can actually be free. That's the hope that God has for you. And in case you're wondering about, oh, but you don't understand. You just don't understand the depravity or the significance of my sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And we can read Christ in there as well. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that we may be able to endure it. See, most people like kind of the first part of that verse. They don't like the last part of that verse. That idea of, of God being faithful, we like that. No temptation is overtaking us, which is common to man, we like that. Not being tempted beyond what we're able, we're like that. But with the temptation provides the way of escape. Escape can be hard work. How many of you have ever watched Hogan's Heroes? I mean, it took years, right? I mean, you know, escape can be hard work. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But anyway, um, it can be unsuccessful. But if God provides the way of escape, it may still be hard work, but you'll get out. That you may be able to endure it. There's no quick fix. No quick fix to, to, to much in the Christian life. But in regards to sexual sin, there's, there's no quick fix. It's, it's, it's a battle. It's a journey. And God gives us the grace to be able to overcome it uh, as we focus on him, as we focus on his word, as we focus on the things that he provides and teaches us. Well, I have one final illustration I want to live with you. I, I will say it's been, been my joy. I, I especially appreciate the um, uh, any concerns or questions I would have had about the biblical fidelity of the church had been answered based on the introductions um, and the use of scripture uh, in introducing me. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, uh, very thankful for that. Uh, any, any concerns have been uh, allayed there. But no, I, it's been a, a blessing. I appreciate you and, and, and Dale for inviting me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Uh, the Scottish preacher John McNeil used to, to tell a, a true story about an eagle that was uh, uh, caught while it was uh, a young bird by a farmer. And uh, so the farmer who snared the bird, he put a restraint on it so that he couldn't fly and he turned it loose in the barnyard and after a period of time uh, the eagle began to act like the chickens scratching and pecking at the ground the bird that once soared high in the heavens seemed uh, satisfied to live in the barnyard and to live the life of the lowly hen one day the farmer was visited by a shepherd who lived in the mountains where the eagles lived Seeing the eagle, the shepherd said to the farmer, What a shame to keep that bird hobbled here in your barnyard. Why don't you let it go? The farmer agreed, so they cut off the restraint, but the eagle continued to wander around, scratching and pecking as before. 
The shepherd picked it up and set it on a high stone wall. For the first time in months, the eagle saw the grand expanse of the blue sky and the glowing sun. Then it spread its wings with a leap, soared off into the tremendous spiral, a flight up, up, and up. At last, it was acting like an eagle again. My prayer is that sometime this weekend, God took you and put you on that wall and helped you to recognize that you're not to be a chicken living a life of existence in a barnyard, but you indeed have been freed to live a life that God created you to live, one of freedom so that you can indeed soar as this uh, eagle was allowed to soar as well. Thank you. All right.